If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Today, I welcome a guest who may be the only person we've ever had on this podcast who has not only met President Obama in person, but has also given him advice. Evan Marwell will join us today. And let me share with you, Evan is in the midst of an incredibly successful 25-year career as a serial entrepreneur. And I don't mean like he produces morning breakfast. I mean he starts company after company and nonprofit after nonprofit. And he does it in just an amazing way. So one of the nonprofits that he's created is the Education Superhighway, and that organization addresses the digital divide in American schools. And if you don't think there's a digital divide in American schools, it might mean that you're either in a really well-equipped school or you just don't know what your school should have. So Evan is a remarkable man by anyone's standards. He is a graduate of Harvard University and Harvard Business School. He has founded several companies in the software, hedge fund, telecom, and consumer retailing spaces. And he is the board chair of an NGO, that's non-governmental organization, that works with subsistence farmers in Mali, Senegal, and Tanzania. He's created a summer internship program that links college students from less advantaged communities with CEO members of the Young Presidents Organization. And so clearly what you see here is that Evan is a busy guy. And yet in all of that being busy, he founded a nonprofit that is modernizing the FCC's E-rate program. So what exactly did he do? So we're talking essentially about three elements today. Because whenever you want to get the government to do something, it probably takes three elements. We're going to be talking about creating a sense of urgency, recruiting top talent, and avoiding mission creep. And by the way, I did not come up with these. I asked Evan, I'm like, what do you want to talk about? And those are the three things. So if you feel the need to really take your nonprofit to the next level, you have tuned in for, and you have downloaded the best conversation with Evan Marwell. Hey, Evan, welcome to the podcast. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I've got to ask you, what was the impetus 
for your turning your attention to the state of Wi-Fi in American schools? Well, you know, it really was uh, almost by accident. And, and that's sort of been the truth of my entrepreneurial career is I just keep happening into these opportunities. And, and I think part of the reason for that is that I'm always open to opportunity. And I think any good entrepreneur or any good leader always needs to, you know, be open to the thing that might come along that can cause you to change direction or, or present a new opportunity that you think you're the person to take advantage of. And for Education Superhighway, it, it really was uh, what I like to call a series of fortunate events. You know, out here in San Francisco, we, there's an author named Lemony Snicket, who I'm sure you've heard of. He writes the series of unfortunate events. Well, this has been sort of the opposite uh, experience. And really, uh, three things happened. Um, in 2010, I was finishing up my stint uh, in the hedge fund business and decided it was time for me to move on. And I happened to read this book called Bold Endeavors by a guy named Felix Roayton. Now, most of your listeners probably won't know who he is, but the, suffice it to say, he's the guy who saved New York City from bankruptcy back in the 70s. And Felix is a bit of a policy wonk, and he wanted, uh, in, the, in the face of the recession in 2009, he wanted to convince the government that we needed an infrastructure bank to sort of get us out of the Great Recession. And this book had 10 vignettes of these infrastructure projects that changed the face of America. So things like rural electrification, the Erie Canal, the Transcontinental Railroad. And his argument was basically, hey, these projects changed the face of the country and only the government was big enough to do them. So we need the government to do these things again to get us out of the Great Recession. But when I read the book, the thing I took away more than anything was that every one of those projects was one person who had this crazy visionary idea and kept working at it and working at it and working at it until the government showed up with the money. And, and I said, huh, that would be fun as my next project. Maybe I can find an infrastructure project that, uh, that can change the face of America if I can only get the government to show up with the money. But of course, I had no idea what that was. But that was sort of, you know, fortunate event number one. Fortunate event number two was that I was on the board at my daughter's school. Um, it was a private K-8 school here in San Francisco in the heart of Silicon Valley. And I heard about this great thing called Khan Academy. And for those of you who don't know, Khan Academy was one of the first sort of online teaching resources where this guy Sal Khan would record these short videos to explain things like how to add fractions or how to factor polynomials. He started with math and now does all kinds of other things. And I said, wow, that's amazing. Uh, we should use that at my daughter's school. And so I went to the teachers and I said, hey, I heard about this thing Khan Academy. Uh, we should try that. And, you know, the teachers looked at me and they said, oh, yeah, yeah, we tried that. Uh, it didn't work. And you know, a lot of people would sort of stop there and say, oh, it didn't work. Okay, move on. But as an entrepreneur, you have to approach the world as uh, with a glass half full kind of attitude and say, well, well, what do you mean it didn't work? And you, you sort of ask the follow-up questions. And what they basically ended up telling me was that it wasn't that they didn't get the learning outcomes they were hoping to get, but literally it didn't work. And what that meant was they had lousy internet access. So it turned out that our school had a cable modem for 500 people, 
I have a cable modem at home for five people, and my kids are always telling me how slow it is. And uh, and they had a Wi-Fi network that was about eight years old and didn't reach every classroom. And so teachers would describe it as sucking peanut butter through a trying to use the internet. So that was sort of the second thing is I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. There's there's a problem. And and so what we did was we brought fiber to the school. We got a lot more bandwidth because of that. We put in a new Wi-Fi network and suddenly the teachers were like, oh, the internet works. We can actually try using technology in our classroom. So I'm assuming a private K through eight school in San Francisco is probably reasonably well-funded. So is this just more the school did not know what technology they really needed to make this work or was this something else? Yeah, that's exactly right. This was not a money question. This was that they didn't know what it was they needed. And, And one of the things that we learned once we got going with Education Superhighway was they were not alone. And uh, that was probably the single biggest problem we had to address first in our in our journey at Education Superhighway. So anyway, so I have these two events that have happened. And so in the back of my mind, I'm going, it'd be great to find a big infrastructure project to work on. And then I like hear about my daughter's K-8 school not having good Wi-Fi. And then I get invited to a meeting at the White House to talk about how do we make America better with technology? And it was myself and and 14 other CEOs and serial entrepreneurs from Silicon Valley. And the format was, we came to the White House, the chief technology officer of America came in, he gave a few remarks, and then he started going around the table. And to get ready for this, I had been like, well, what the heck am I going to talk about? And I thought about the fact that my daughter's school, which had plenty of resources, had lousy internet access. And I said, I wonder if that's true in the public schools. And after a lot of work, what I found was a survey that the Federal Communications Commission had done that said 80% of schools had lousy broadband. So when he comes to me in this meeting, he says to me, well, what do you think we should do to, to make America better with technology? I said, we should fix the school broadband problem. And he looks at me and he says, what school broadband problem? He says, we have this program called E-Rate that spends $2.4 billion a year funding broadband in schools. And I said, yeah, and they all have cable modems and lousy Wi-Fi. And he sort of looked at me and he didn't know what to say. And so he moved on. And I thought, okay, that's the end of that. But then a funny thing happened, which was President Obama came in and the CTO sat down next to me. And President Obama is making a few remarks. And then he starts going around the table and the CTO leans over to me and he says, you should go fix that. And I'm like, fix what? It's like, that school broadband problem. You mean the one that you said doesn't exist? And he said, yeah, yeah, that one. I said, well, I thought we're here to tell you what to fix. And he looks at me, he leans back in his chair, he gets this little smile. He says, let me tell you a secret. We're the government. We can't fix anything. (laughs) And and to be fair, what he meant was that the, the government, and we found this to be largely true of government at every level, doesn't have the ability to execute fixes. They can identify problems. They have the bully pulpit to talk about them. They can make policy to hope to change them. They can provide funding, but they don't have capacity to actually go out and make the change happen. And so he challenged me to go start Education Superhighway. And I said, you know what? This is my bold endeavor. This is the big infrastructure project I can do to help change the face of America. 
That's incredible. And you know, and I say again and again, but I think so often the government outsources so much of its work to the nonprofit sector because they know that nonprofits can get it done. But I also think it's because they know that they can give nonprofits 80 cents on the dollar and they'll go out and find the other 20 cents. And so it also saves the government 20%. Um, So I think there's probably two reasons. So what was this like? So you had just finished up with a hedge fund. And I imagine the hedge fund world is very different from the nonprofit world. So what, what was that transition like? Well, to be honest, when I left my job, the hedge fund I'd helped start, I had no intention of going into the nonprofit world. You know, for me, becoming, you know, running a nonprofit meant I was going to spend my time asking my friends for money. And that was not on my agenda of things that I was interested in doing. But, you know, I like to think about the hedge fund experience that I had as, as really my third startup that I did. And I'm a startup guy. And, and you talked about this in the intro. And so I was looking for the next startup. And, um, and, then, I, and, and then I came across this problem. And startups really are all about identifying problems in the marketplace, whether, you know, for profit or not for profit, figuring out a solution to them. And then building the team and raising the funding and building the products and driving execution to solve it so that you're rewarded either with oodles of money in the for-profit world or being able to change the face of the world in the nonprofit world. So in many ways, it wasn't that different because of the way that I approached it. And, and the good news was, for me, I had never worked in the nonprofit world. So I didn't know any other way to do it other than to run it like a startup. So so how did you run, when you started this organization, how did you run it like a startup? What did you do? Well, I did what any startup does in the beginning. You bootstrap. So what did I do? I, uh, I said, okay, um, I've identified this problem. You know, in the startup world, you would say, all right, I need to understand the market better. I need to figure out sort of product market fit. And I said, well, I'm going to do the same thing. So I called up a buddy of mine who I had worked with in the past and who was between jobs. And I said, hey, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm thinking about getting into the ed tech business. And I'm like, oh, perfect. I've got a better idea. It's right in line with that. There's no point in going into the ed tech business right now because no schools actually have internet access. So why don't you come help me with this? So classic thing that someone starting as a startup does is, Go find some co-founders. Go find some people who are willing to work for free uh, in the beginning to help sort of get the idea off the ground so you can then start going and pitching it to people. So what we did is we, f- we spent the first six months doing exactly that, which was basically drawing on our skills as management consultants where we had worked together for the first time um, to figure out what was really the problem Uh, what were the root causes of the problem that were holding back good internet access from getting in schools? And what we found were four things. Number one, there was an awareness problem. Like Anish Chopra, the chief technology officer of America, nobody knew that we had a broadband problem in our schools because everyone's like, oh, we have internet, but they just didn't realize that it wasn't good enough to actually use technology in the classroom. Number two, we had an expertise problem, just like you were referring to earlier. Schools did not know what they needed when it came to broadband. And in fact, in many schools, smaller schools in particular, it was often the gym teacher or the school bus driver who was responsible for the broadband, and they really weren't trained for this. 
third, we had a pricing problem. Schools were paying $22 per megabit per month for their internet access, which is the same as paying like $500 a month for your cable modem. So why were they paying that much? Because they had no idea how to buy. And they didn't know, it came back to this expertise problem, they didn't know who else they could go to and that there was actually a really competitive market out there for, for schools business. And so the rest of the world, the business world was paying $3 a megabit. So, so you know, one eighth of uh, one seventh, one eighth of what schools were paying. So we knew that was a problem. And then finally, we realized there was a policy problem, which was that this program E-rate that uh, the CTO had referred to was amazing because unlike all those other you know, visionaries who needed to like get the government to show up for the money with the money. The money was already there, $2.4 billion of it, but it wasn't being spent very well. A billion dollars of that money was being spent on phone service and phone service wasn't helping anyone get broadband since the 1990s when you used to have to go on dial up. So I've got to ask you another quick question. So you've decided to start this nonprofit. You made the smart decision of say, I don't want to go this alone. Let me find someone else who will work for free with me for a little while. In the for-profit startup world, you've got angel investors, you've got venture capitalists. You know, did, you, did you try to identify sources of initial funding, and how did that go? Yeah, so the, the good news was that because I'd been successful in my earlier ventures in the for-profit side, I was able to be the angel investor for the first uh, you know, six to 12 months of our work. So, uh, so I put the money in up front. But literally, my entire team for probably the first six months was a, a team of volunteers. So we had guys who um, had been on the sales and marketing side from consulting. We had software developers who, you know, were between gigs and wanted to pitch in and, and help out. And, you know, the money went for things like travel and some office space. And, uh, and ultimately, we started hiring our first full-time employees. And, and so part of what's so impressive about that is, I have a feeling that the people that you're describing are were probably when they were working in the for-profit sector, you know, compensated really well. So in the six and say seven figures, not not in the four and five figures. That's a hundred percent correct. These were super talented people, you know, most of whom I would say were um, in their forties and fifties. Uh, you know, so they were at the peaks of their careers. They had all accomplished amazing things. But they all were, A, between gigs, and B, had this desire to, to do something more, to have a purpose for the work that they were doing. And so they were like, this is a great way for me to spend some time. So now I've got to ask how you organize this team, because I'm also picturing a group of probably relatively type A people who now have decided they all want to self-actualize. So how did you organize this team of volunteers and keep them motivated? Like, did you, did, was there any type of a hierarchy? Who did what? How did you figure all that out? Well, you know, in the early days, there's not much hierarchy in any startup. I mean, you know, some somebody's on the hook for it. That was me. Uh, but fortunately, I was only on the hook to myself because I was writing the checks in the early days. <laughs> yeah, people had different roles. So when we would bring people in um, as volunteers, we would be very clear about what their job was that we wanted them to deliver. And, and in those days, it was very much a project-oriented focus, right? We weren't like a team all working on like, you know, a bunch of things. We had very clear objectives that we were trying to meet. 
And in that first six months, it was a lot about figuring out those root causes. And then in the next six months, it was about building the solution that we decided on to solve the awareness problem, um, which was a, a speed test, kind of like you use to measure your internet access at home, but tied to a database of schools. And so that's when the tech folks started getting involved when we needed to build that. And so everyone had a project. And I found early on, it's really important when you're dealing with volunteers, especially, that everything be sort of project oriented so that they can come in and say like, okay, I know what I have to accomplish. I know what, when I have to accomplish it by, and then I can manage my time to get that done. Because they're not your employees. They're not necessarily showing up at the office every day. And, and so they need another way to sort of stay on track. Project focus, that is so smart. But now I've got to ask you, so you've got this group of roughly like how many, six, 10, 12 volunteers, just roughly? No, I'd say it was uh, uh, four or five volunteers. I don't want you to call anybody out, but did everybody kind of follow through on their commitments or did you ever have people who'd say, oh yeah, I'll do that. And then three months later, it was still not done. So no, we, we definitely had people who sort of came into the, into the, into the project said they were going to do something. And then pretty quickly you realize actually they weren't that committed. And so you like reassigned that work to someone else and, and you use them. You, you have to gauge sort of their level of commitment early on and then figure out, okay, given that level of commitment, what can I really use them for? So for instance, um, we had a woman who is a marketer and she came in and she's like, Oh, I'd love to help with the marketing of that. Um, but we quickly re realized that she had a bunch of other things going on as well. And so we limited her scope to helping us do one very specific thing that was really easy for her to do because she already had a network and it didn't require doing a lot of work. It was more about helping make introductions to people that we needed to, to get things. Got it. And so that kind of, how did you have that conversation with her? Because I think so many, especially founder directors and, and early boards, have a hard time having that conversation, kind of saying, hey, you agreed to do this, you're not doing it, but can you do something else instead? Yeah. How did we do that? You know, I, I think it was more kind of a natural evolution. Like the first time she doesn't deliver the thing that we were expecting, you sort of say, hey, are you sure you can do this? We know you've got a lot else going on in your life. And you just sort of naturally evolve to a place of like, what is comfortable for you? Because we enjoy having you on the team. We know you can add value. Let's just make that fit. And I think, you know, it's a really good point because as I went along, as more volunteers came in, I think I was really cognizant of finding that sort of time, expertise, availability fit in the beginning and, and making sure that we sort of walked before we ran with people and we didn't give them big, huge things before we knew whether they could really have the time to do, to do them. I know one of the things we're going to talk about is creating this sense of urgency. So did that also help with, with determining whether or not volunteers were going to quickly follow through because you had this sense of, we got to do this, we got to do this right now while we have an opportunity? Exactly. There's nothing more important, in my opinion, um, for startups than having a sense of urgency. And, you know, my own observation, and this is not universally true, but my own observation is that 
urgency is not a word that I would generally describe about how nonprofits writ large are managed. Um, but in the startup world, if you don't have a sense of urgency, someone else is going to beat you to the thing. And so I didn't know any other way to, to manage an organization than to have a sense of urgency and aggressive goals. And I'll share with you, I think nonprofits that are in trouble, whether it's financial trouble, programmatic trouble, whatever, I think those that successfully get themselves out of trouble have that sense of urgency. And those that don't, those that just end up eventually just dying, they do not have the sense of urgency throughout the organization. Yeah, I agree with that. And so you're growing the organization and you're now ready to to bring on, you know, maybe your first, second or third paid staff member. How do you, like, what did you do to recruit like not just the right person, but, you know, the best person. Yeah. So I'll be honest. Um, I made I made some mistakes early on with my recruiting. And, and the key mistake that I made, and, and this was one area where running things like a startup didn't necessarily translate as perfectly to the to the nonprofit world. And that key thing was I didn't understand how critical it was to hire people that were really bought into our mission. And I think in the nonprofit world, you know, in the for-profit world, people are there because they're interested, they want to solve a problem, but to a great extent, they're there to make money, right? In the nonprofit world, especially in the startup nonprofit world, if they're not bought into the mission, like really bought in, they're not going to be the right employees, especially early on. But really, that was a lesson that I had to learn. So, so for me, you know, a lot of the same approaches to hiring that you would take in, in the for-profit world, you know, writing the job description, being really clear about what this person needs to do, understanding the skill sets that they need to have, leveraging all the technology tools that are out there today. But we really had to get clear that we needed to make sure that the person and we needed to interview for first and foremost, how committed were they to the mission? Were they just doing this because this was an interesting opportunity or were they doing this because they really wanted to help solve this problem? How many staff people does your organization have now? So at our peak, we were 70 people. We're now down to 50 because as I'm sure we'll talk about later, we, uh, we are getting close to actually completing our mission and are going to be sunsetting the organization in August of 2020. So we're, we're on the back end of our curve as we only have the last you know, 1% of schools that we need to connect to, to high-speed internet. Oh my gosh. So I love this. So first of all, what year were you founded in? We were founded in January of 2012. In eight years, you will have started up, gotten going, achieved your mission, and then put yourself out of business. That's exactly right. Awesome. I, I That is completely and totally awesome. At what point, like when you got started in 2012, was was the ultimate goal to go out of business? And did you have a timeline? Or, or at what point did you all decide, hey, we're going we're gonna to meet this mission, then we're going to just wrap up and go away? When we started, I told everyone we were going to go out of business in 2020. We were going to solve this problem in eight years. Now, I actually had no idea if that could happen, but I knew myself. And as you, as you noted in my background, I've started a number of organizations. Well, part of the reason for that is, as an entrepreneur, I need to be on a really steep learning curve or I get bored. And so I know that my general timeline is about eight years when I need to move on to something new. 
And, um, and so I said, look, I think we've got to solve this problem in eight years so that I'm not bored. So Evan, I love this. But part of what I love is that is the definition of a big, bold goal. We are going to fix broadband in every school in America in eight years. Like, you know, I, I'm always talking about the importance of a big, bold goal. That is a huge, like that's a big lift. Well, and importantly, it was a finite goal. It was a big goal. You know, I'm a huge believer in, uh, you know, good to great and big, hairy objectives um, uh, as a way of motivating and focusing organizations. But the other thing that's really important is we picked a goal that was big and bold, but also finite. There were only 100,000 schools in America. We, you know, so we could say, like, that's our goal. That is actually achievable. And and this is something that I think the nonprofit sector and, and the philanthropic sector, quite frankly, really should spend more time thinking about it. You know, to me, there's no reason that almost every nonprofit shouldn't define their mission in a way that's achievable in pick a number, 10 years, right? Um, so rather than solving world hunger, say that you're going to solve hunger in San Francisco, or if you don't think you can do that, say you're going to solve it in the Tenderloin in San Francisco. But, but, but pick a mission that you can accomplish in 10 years. And when 10 years are up, you can always decide to pick a new mission. But, but I really believe that for a whole bunch of reasons, not the least of which is founder and funder getting tired, that having a finite goal that can be accomplished in that kind of a time period is really, really valuable for an organization. Absolutely. Kind of that, that donor fatigue where are like, okay, you keep talking to us about this and it's been two decades. So how are you keeping your paid staff motivated? So you're down to 50 staff and they know that next year they're going to be out of a job. So like, yeah. how, like, like how are you keeping them engaged and motivated? And frankly, how do you keep them from jumping ship? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a huge question. Um, so we, you know, I've been talking about going out of business in 2020 since 2012, but really nobody believed me until about a year and a half ago. And then people started saying, okay, what are we going to do next? And I said, well, I don't know what I'm going to do next, but really we're going out of business. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, so this has been a really interesting management challenge and one that I've never faced before. And, and, and unfortunately, we haven't been able to find many other organizations that have had sort of a planned obsolescence, if you will, as opposed to like, oh, we ran out of money, we're out of business kind of thing, right? So, you know, we, we've done a couple things to try to keep people around. So the first thing is we've been incredibly transparent people, right? We, we believe that, you know, when you're honest and transparent with people and they know what's coming, um, you know, you can then engage in a conversation of, well, what's it going to take to keep you around? So that was number one. Number two, we realized that we needed to make sure that for the last two years that, that people were here, that they needed to really keep growing. And that meant that we did a couple of things. Number one, we brought in uh, a, a, a VP of talent whose sole job was to set up a professional, professional development plan and program for our team members so that they would all keep developing over the next two years. The second thing we did on that front is we started making sure that we were being very thoughtful about who got what assignments so they would continue to be challenged and they would continue to have opportunities to do new things. So that was the second thing. The third thing that we did is we made a commitment to them that we were going to help them with the offboarding process. 
So we brought, we've got a whole sort of, in addition to the professional development, we've got a career planning and offboarding program that we're bringing in uh, that, that will start actually this summer as people, as we get ready for our last little over a year. And then the last thing we did, I think, which has been super important is we figured out how to make it possible to give every one of our employees who's with us to the end six months of severance so that they would have time to make that transition. Yeah, I was wondering if there was going to be some type of a retention incentive there, and there is. Yeah, really, two. One is you get help with offboarding, and the other is you get six months of severance. That's right. And and the thing I will say, however, is that probably the thing that's going to more, I mean, all those things are really important, and, and they make it possible for people to stay. But the thing that is going to make the vast majority of the people who are here to the end stay comes back to what I was saying about hiring, commitment to the mission. They want to be here when we're done. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, the other thing I think about, and Evan, I don't know your politics, but, you know, I, I am shamelessly progressive, and I talk about that on the podcast. The other thing I think about is, you know, wow, if someone if someone has done really well there and is maybe interested in moving into a Democratic administration, 2020 is a great time to roll out, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, and I'm sure we're going to have a few people who, uh, you know, uh, go and work on presidential campaigns and things like that uh, leading up to, 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 the, to the election. You've mentioned about 18 months or two years ago, uh, some board and staff members started to say, OK, what else might we focus on? You know, how are we going to be like the March of Dimes? We've we've you know, we've cured polio. Now what are we going to do? Oh, you know, you know, um, uh, birth defects. How have you kind of channeled that so that there's not this sense of, okay, either let's go find a new mission or, oh, wait, why don't we now also start working on A, B, C, D, or E? Yeah, well, I've just been really clear that, like, we're not doing that. <laughs> so, and, and I tell them why. So, so I have a, a basic theory, which is that um, in Silicon Valley, companies don't have second acts. People have second acts, teams have second acts, but companies really don't have second acts. Companies get started with a specific problem or market opportunity that they're going to solve, and they go after that, and they're built to solve that problem. And there are incredibly few organizations that you can point to in Silicon Valley, you know, maybe Apple, um, that have actually managed to sort of find a new market solve a new problem, you know, get to scale. Most of the companies that you see that exist for a long time and have had multiple product transitions, um, they all uh, have acquired them. Google acquired YouTube. Oracle has acquired a number of applications that it's done. You know, um, uh, you know Facebook acquired Instagram and WhatsApp, et cetera, et cetera. So, so my belief is, number one, companies don't have second acts, and it's because they're generally purpose-built to go after one opportunity, and they have a hard time. They may not have the right people, and they have all kinds of legacy things inhibiting them as they try to go after a second opportunity. So that's number one. In the for-profit sector, you know, the, I, I think, and you got the experience on this, I do not, Evan, but... When, when people invest, they're, they're investing wanting to know what the exit strategy is. Okay, you know, what, what, when does my investment pay off? And I think maybe in the nonprofit sector, more of a focus on that, of being able to say, okay, um, you know, if, if you invest this, we're going to solve this problem in eight years, and that's how your investment pays off. 
Exactly, exactly right. The second thing though, that's also really important is, you know, as an entrepreneur, I understand that when you're starting, you need to be lean and you need to be flexible. And you don't wanna, you know, our budget is about $10 million a year. If I decide I wanna go solve another problem, I don't wanna start with a $10 billion a year budget, right? I wanna start with like a, you know, $10,000 a year budget, <laughs> you know? Time and, and space to sort of figure out what they would call in the for-profit sector, product market fit. Like what specifically is the problem? How are we gonna solve it? Can we get, you know, actually believe we can solve it. And uh, you need to be small and lean and flexible in those days. Nice. Very nice. Do you have any advice for someone who's not a serial entrepreneur who is about or wants to start a nonprofit? What would, what would, that, what would those words of advice be? So my number one piece of advice would be um, understand upfront what does success look like? and define that in a finite way, right? Again, back to this finite mission. My number one piece of advice would be pick a problem where you will know if you've solved it and you believe you can solve it within a 10-year period. So that would be number one. Number two would be spend the first part of your time as a, as a, as a nonprofit really understanding the root causes of the problem that you're trying to solve so that you then can come up with the right strategy for solving it. And then my third piece of advice would be, um, it's, it's, it's all about getting to scale. And there are two incredibly important levers in your path to scale. One is data because data can help you convince people that the problem exists and that it's solvable, okay? Too many nonprofits go to people with like, we have this problem, but they can't really make it clear how it's gonna get solved. And so data really helps you do that, which attracts both talent and funding to your mission. And the second thing is, expect that you're gonna have to partner with government because at the end of the day, for the big problems in this world, only government has the reach, the resources, and the platform to really make solving these, these problems possible. But they need help from nonprofits and others in figuring out the solutions and driving execution, just as we talked about at the beginning mm -hmm. of this show. And I think especially for a lot of nonprofit startups, that's the out of the that's one of those out-of-the-box ideas. Like, yeah, you're not gonna achieve your mission unless you're partnering with the government. Yeah, and I mean, sure, there will be a few that do, but my my takeaway is that the biggest challenge nonprofits run into is how do they get to scale? And uh, the best path to scale, in my opinion, is government. Not necessarily federal government. Could you know, for us, a lot of it was about state government, but it could also be about city government, depending on you know what problem it is and how you've defined success. And to be honest with you, mayors. And governors, all they want to do is get stuff done. And if you can come to them with clear understanding of a problem, a solution that makes sense, and the execution capacity to actually put the solution in place, you're going to have a really open and willing audience to partner with.
the more ambitious a mayor or governor is, the more they want to get done. So, you know, the mayor or governor that wants to be a senator or a president, they they want a good resume. And I haven't met a governor yet who doesn't want to be president. <laughs> you know, that's probably true. Well, Evan, I want to save a little bit of time for the off-the-map question. And the off-the-map question just gives listeners an opportunity to get to know you. Although, I have to say, um, you are just authentically you. And I think listeners probably already feel like they know you a little bit already. But I read somewhere that your motto is that it's better to be lucky than to be smart. And you know, you, you you went to Harvard, so we already know you're smart. So so that's unusual to say, well, I'd rather be lucky than smart, since you're smart. Um, tell me about that motto. It actually is my motto, better to be lucky than smart. Um, look, I believe that this world is populated with an unbelievable number of smart and talented people. And what each of us needs is uh, a little bit of luck to be in the right place at the right time. Starting Education Superhighway was luck. If those three things hadn't happened, I wouldn't have started Education Superhighway. But I'll give you my best story about uh, why it's better to be lucky than smart in in the context of Education Superhighway. So um, shortly after we'd uh, sort of done our root cause work, and we'd realized that one of the problems was that this awareness problem, that people didn't know uh, that, that we had a digital divide in our schools. And um, so we built this speed test because we figured, well, if we test the broadband in every school, we'll have the data to prove it. And so we did all this work. We built the speed test. We got Arnie Duncan and Julius Janikowski, who were the, the, the chairman of the FCC and the secretary of education, to launch it. Um, we got all these nonprofits and for-profits that did businesses with schools to send emails to their, uh, their customers and, and people they worked with saying, hey, test your broadband. And we went out and um, we got about a thousand people to test their broadband. Okay. Now to put this in perspective, we ultimately ended up with 800,000 people testing their broadband. I'm like, okay, we had a thousand people that wasn't really successful. And here's where the lucky part comes in. So I'm, I'm talking to my mother about this and um, one day, and uh, a couple days later, I get a call back from her. And she's like, hey, I have an idea for you. I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know, not expecting this with my mother. She's like, well, I was in the supermarket the other day, and I ran into my old boss, and his name was Kurt. And Kurt is now in charge of all education technology for the state of Wisconsin Department of Education. And he asked me, you know, he knew you when you were growing up, and he asked me what you were doing, and I told him, and And he said, oh, we're getting ready to do all this online testing, and we have no idea if our schools can actually do it. Please have Evan call me, and maybe we can work together to figure out which of our schools have enough broadband to test. So I call up Kurt, and he's like, yeah, I've got this huge problem. I don't know who. Let's let's test our schools. So we partnered with the Wisconsin Department of Education and we got 80% of the schools in Wisconsin to test their broadband in 30 days. And the light bulb went off and I said, oh, this is how we get schools to test their broadband. We partner with departments of education and that's how we ultimately got 800,000 people. So in the category of better to be lucky than smart, 
It sure was lucky. My mom was in the supermarket that day and ran into her old boss who happened to have the same problem I was trying to work on. And also, you know, that she just happened to have worked for him decades ago. Exactly. Very cool. Well, Evan, thank you so much. I cannot thank you enough for chatting today. You have given both myself and our listeners so much to chew on, and it's been just a tremendous pleasure. Now, before I let you go, I want to make sure that all of our listeners know about the two websites that they can go to to check out, essentially, and learn more about the Education Superhighway. And of course, we're going to link this in the show notes because some of the URLs are are a little bit longer. If you're driving, you won't be able to write them down. EducationSuperhighway.org. This site has great resources for everyone who is concerned about the digital divide. You can see how schools in your area are doing in the soon-to-be-released 2019 State of the States report, and that's going to be on this site. Just click on Resources. The second website I want everyone to go and check out is CompareAndConnectK12.org. School districts can use the Compare and Connect tool to learn how much they should be paying for bandwidth. If you recall, Evan said that a lot of schools were paying way too much for bandwidth because they do not know how to pay how to buy it. So now you can compare and see, okay, are we paying the right amount for our bandwidth? Now service providers can find information as well about how to bid on upgrades at this site. So this is kind of an, a one-stop shop if a school wants to get a better deal on their bandwidth. Hey, Evan, again, thank you so much. I just deeply appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah, it was great being here, and I appreciate all the work you're doing to help make the nonprofit world more effective. Listeners, if you are busy calling your kids' teachers to tell them to check out Education Superhighway right now, don't hang up. Stay on the line. We'll have all of the information you need in our show notes at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. Now, Evan is a busy, busy person. That is for sure. And I am going to hazard a guess and say that if you work in a nonprofit, you are probably a super busy person as well. So I am grateful that you took out the time today to hear this conversation with Evan Marwell. If you enjoyed the show, please do me a favor. Hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast platform you're using. And I know it won't be iTunes much longer, but, and if you're feeling generous, give us a rating while you're at it. And if you got two minutes on top of that, hey, I love a couple words of a review. That's our show for this week, listeners. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment.